Welcome to the Blackhawks Talk podcast presented by Coors Light with Blackhawks insider Charlie Romeliotis. I am Pat Boyle. On this episode, we analyze a pair of uninspiring performances. How will Derek King handle the first adversity on his watch after a 6-1 loss to Nashville and a 5-1 defeat at the hands of Calgary? Plus, special teams and 5-on-5 scoring continues to struggle. How can this be corrected? And we take a look at what could be a very pivotal road trip for the Blackhawks. It's all coming up next on the Blackhawks Talk Podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Born in the Rockies, Coors Light is lagered cold for a crisp, clean taste. Filtered cold to ensure clarity and brightness. And packaged cold for peak refreshment. Because those who thirst for more deserve the world's most refreshing beer. a very disappointing return after a two-week layoff for the Blackhawks. They lose 6-1 in Nashville on Saturday where King said half the guys weren't ready to play. And then on Sunday, they lose 5-1 at home to Calgary. And Derek King said uh, three or four guys weren't ready to play or were passengers. (laughs) So, uh, you know, these are not the efforts we have seen from this team since Derek King took over. Yeah, no. And they they obviously, they lost their fourth straight. Um, I know they have points in two of those so it's just a it's a winless um skid that they're on i it's it's really hard for for me to um i I feel like we're kind of like in the in the thick of it right where it's two months into the Derek king era right now and we're kind of like seeing where this team is at i think when i break down the two games i was actually like pretty encouraged by the nashville game like the 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 very first shift of the game I don't know if you remember, Philip Kirshev had like a scoring chance, like off the rush, like 20 seconds into the game. And so like they they came out with with the right attitude, the right mentality. And the problem was that, you know, a few seconds later, the very next shift, Nashville scores a, a you know, a pretty soft goal. And um, and then it was just snowballed into there. But um, yeah, I don't know, Pat, it's kind of, you know, we were talking off the air a little bit. It's kind of it just feels like we're in this we're having the same conversations about this team every year. Um, and this, the fact that they, they lost, you know, they, whatever, the first 12 games are so disastrous that they've dug such a large hole that it's, you know, even if you want to start where the Derek King, when Derek King took over, you can look at, remember going into the Christmas break, they were on like an hundred point pace under Derek King. Like it still just feels like they're so far away because of that putrid start at the beginning of the season. And they can't really lean on any anybody or any unit right now because you got both the power play and the PK struggling mightily. Uh, you know, the last couple of games you had, uh, you know, fill-in netminders and Delia and um, Soderbloom. And you're, you know, you're even Patrick Kane, who, you, you know, we would always sit there and go, okay, he's gone three or four games without a goal. He is due. Well, he's got two in his last 21. And, you know, the only person really you can sort of lean on right now offensively is Alex Debrinkit. So 
when you can't rely on certain facets of your game to get you through the nights that not everybody is going, and you brought this up at the beginning of the year, and you asked it to Jeremy Colleton, how are you going to win games when you've got your B and C game going? And the answer is that this team is not able to win games when they have their B and C game going. Yeah, it, they they rely so heavily on the goaltending to really steal them some some games, and we saw it even last year during the when they were going back with Kevin Lankinen and Malcolm Subban. Like the, the reason they were in that playoff hunt for the first couple months of the year is like they were getting pretty solid goaltending, and they were getting offense from Alex DeBrincat and, and Patrick Kane, and on the power play as well. So it's just not a long term um recipe for success and we're seeing it right now like the only offense is really coming from Patrick Kane to Alex Dabrinkit and the only way they're winning is getting great goaltending from Mark Andre Fleury like since November 6 when Derek King took over like Mark Andre Fleury has like the fifth best save percentage in the league and fourth in like goal saved above that like it's just not sustainable um over the course of you know, an 82 game season. So they, they have to find a way to get secondary scoring, but I just feel like we're beating a dead horse when we, I mean, we're in January now, like at some point this might be who they are. Yeah. And, and you asked which loss bothered you more. I'll say Calgary. I know you went with Nashville. No, no, I agree. I'll go Calgary because I expect, look, we kind of expected or knew there could be a possibility of a flat performance after being off for two weeks and knowing Nashville played Wednesday and Thursday and kind of maybe got some of that rust off. Um, That second period against Calgary at home, allowing 26 shots on goal is inexcusable. I would say one of those penalties called against them was was kind of bogus. The one on Alex, I I didn't see it unless there was a different camera angle that we missed. Uh, but, you know, the, the being on the PK for, uh, you know, almost, you know, six consecutive minutes or a good chunk of that second period uh, doesn't bode well for a, a PK that's struggling mightily. And, uh, you know, they, they barely got any offense going on their own. So, yeah, I, I, I was I was expecting – a bounce back effort against Calgary and Calgary, like they'd only played one game over their last, you know, like I think it was like 22 or three days. Yeah. They were, you know, like, yeah, that was the team that really shut everything down. Right. They had, they went from zero players to six in COVID protocol and it was the game against the Blackhawks. And from there is when things just totally snowballed for the NHL. Yeah, so like you know, you were kind of on even footing as far as the lack of of playing games, and you were actually a little bit ahead of them, and it it certainly didn't look that way. So uh, a disappointing effort in, in both contests. Uh, it's really the first adversity under Derek King, and and as far as holding players accountable, you know, that's a question I asked Derek on our podcast last week because that's something he brought up in his introductory press conference and he joked at the time and he said oh you don't see me after periods coming <laughs> in and and flipping the uh the gatorade bottle over um and then he said you know this team it's about being accountable to one another and he said they're very good at that and then he he was asked about it yesterday when he talked about you know the passengers and the guys not ready to play. And he goes, obviously, 
I'm not naming names. I'm not going to ever name names, but they know who they are and we'll address it and we'll talk within our doors. We'll figure this out. Um, you know, this is the first adversity since uh, since he took over for Jeremy Colleton. Yeah, and, and I understand, you know, you look at the 6-1 loss to Nashville and then the 5-1 loss to the Calgary Flames. And I understand, you know, the, the fan base, they like, they want, you know, they're coming with pitchforks after performances like that, right? That is not in Derek King's MO. And and I think back to the, the, the Nashville game too, like very clearly we're watching the game and we knew exactly what happened. One team had one of the league's best goaltenders in the world in UC Saros and the other team did not have you know, they were down to their third and fourth string goaltenders. And you can even look at the numbers, Pat. The, the Blackhawks had an expected goals for of 3.44 against Nashville. Their expected expected goals against was 2.67. So, like, that's four goals. That's a four-goal differential as far as, like, you know, I, I was having a conversation with my friend who was in Nashville, too. We were saying, like, if Marc-Andre Fleury was the goaltender in Nashville, what does that game look like? It's probably 1-1. The entire game and may, maybe goes to overtime and you know probably finishes it as a two-one score. So like I'm I'm not even you know discouraged by that effort. But Derek King after the game, like we obviously knew that the goaltending was the issue. But what was he going to say? Colin Delia stunk today. Arvid Soderbaum didn't look like it. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just it's not the right time to do that. And I think that's what he means by saying the players hold each other accountable. I don't think like. Derek King doesn't have to go to the media and say, we didn't get the, we didn't get goaltending today. Like it just doesn't, it rubs, it would rub the players in the locker room the wrong way because then it's putting the onus on that player. Like the, knowing that the players themselves, like Patrick Kane having two goals in 21 games. I, I don't think Derek King needs to come out into the media and say, Patrick Kane, he needs to start scoring goals. Like Patrick Kane knows that he has to start scoring goals. Right. So I think that's where the, what is being said behind the scenes is one thing what he's going to say in the media, he's not going to throw his players under the bus. And I appreciate that because I, I don't think that's the right way to go about it. That's that's how you lose a locker room pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree. And I, the thing that I have a problem with is players not ready to play on a team that we've already said, you know, the, the margin for error is very slight. There are very few positions on this team that are locked up. You know, like it's it's a... The, the lines look different almost every night. There's only a few guys that you know are going to be with this organization uh, for several years. And they're going to likely be a seller at the trade deadline. So even more onus on you to give max effort when you get your opportunity. And these guys that kind of drift in and out of the lineup, that might be a healthy scratch here and then play two games. Like, I'm not even seeing the bump from those types of players that you kind of – it's just kind of a given when you're out of the line. Like like last night, I thought Henrik Borgstrom had a great first period, uh, probably one of his best. He drew a penalty, went to the front of the net, uh, did a great job. He was outnumbered, won a board battle, got it, kicked it to Patrick Kane, who set up Alex to bring it. And then, you know, I didn't notice him as much the rest of the way. So, like – uh, the lack of consistency, top to bottom, and again, this this goes. This is I'm not po- pointing just to one one player here. It's it's a it's a a collective uh, uh, lack of consistency. But the not ready to play on a team that the previous coach said work ethic was everything. That 
the current regime holds people like Brandon Hagel in high regard and talk about that's the way we want to play. And then we see the efforts that we saw the last two days from some players that like their their NHL future is is tenuous at best, best as far as like being in one place. So I, I that's the part that that's a head scratcher to me. Yeah. I, I don't know if I can go to they weren't ready to play in Nashville. Like, I, I thought that that was a re- – they started – I think they were – at one point they were out shooting Nashville like 15-3 to 3 in, the, yes, in the first period. Were, you know, like that were. was – especially coming off a two-week layoff, like that's that's exactly what you wanted to see. You know, if if they didn't have their, their legs, legs underneath them and like the first 10 minutes they were sleepy, like I understand. But like they, they had a really solid start, I thought, and then you're just playing behind the eight ball because you couldn't get a save. Now the the Calgary situation, I don't know, I don't know if if it wasn't that they weren't ready to play. My bigger issue was they weren't ready to play in the second period. Like it, they they thought maybe they were going to coast to like okay, like we're out shooting them eleven to six, and you know maybe this will be a game that we can kind of just coast by. And it's like they can't have that mentality against those teams. And the problem too, Pat, is like they when they get so far down in games like that early on, you're you're forced to like change up the lines just to spark. Like, have we, we've got to count the number of games where the lines have stayed the same from start to finish on, on our hands. Like it, it hasn't been, it's like, well, um, we saw it in Nashville too. Like the Debrinkit Borgstrom Kane line got separate. Like Kirby doc got promoted to the top line because they needed to generate offense. And it's like, and even, even Pat, the, the power play, like, swapping um Seth Jones and Eric Gustafson for the cow I thought that was probably an overreaction like I thought the power play was so good against Nashville they just didn't get uh you know they just didn't bury their chances and maybe you know maybe Patrick Kane um you know buries that in front of UC Saros and they feel good about themselves but because they didn't get a goal it's like okay we got to change something because we can't roll it back right but sometimes that might be the recipe is just roll it back when when you they did get those chances and not necessarily you have to change things up so I don't know. It's 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 a it's a fine balance, and I'm sure Derek King is trying to to you know because I like the honesty of Derek King after the game yesterday too. He's like, um, he he said something about um, they're not playing the they're not playing the the way for the full sixty minutes. But if they're not, then that's my fault. Like making corrections, like making making over corrections, and so he was you know he had some humility there as well. But yeah, it's just it's just tough to kind of pinpoint exactly how you find the balance of like changing things up, but also just rolling rolling it back to make sure that these guys are on the same page so that way things aren't changing constantly you know on uh saturday king kind of alluded to the goaltending as the problem on the pk allowing those two power play goals to the preds he didn't think they were overly difficult saves um it what what do you make of the pk struggles they allow two on saturday one on sunday and you know, we've been talking about this PK now for, you know, the better part of two months and the struggles. Yeah, I think it was worse before the break. Like the, the Nashville-Calgary game, I, I thought Derek was right. Like it was, you know, it was a point shot that got through in, in one of the goals in Nashville. And like, I don't, I didn't see any like glaring structural breakdowns on the penalty kill in these in these last two games. I and mean, maybe you can, you can really, if you dig deep, you can see, you know, you can see where they were. But like before the break, it felt like there were, there were structural breakdowns and that's why they spent a majority of practice on it because it wasn't like Marc-Andre Fleury wasn't making a save. It was, you know, we're, we're giving up high quality 
scoring chances and and you even see it in all the underlying metrics i thought i liked what they were doing i liked what they were working on during practice like being more aggressive denying entries because that's kind of half the battle and then not being overly aggressive in the defensive zone and you know that that high forward chasing the defenseman that would open up the lanes you know and then you get seamed to death is what Derek Derek King basically said so I think they have the right mentality um maybe these last two games were kind of a blip because they they just had their third and fourth string goaltenders so they weren't getting the saves that Marc-Andre Fleury would typically make on the flip side the Hawks power play 0 for 4 against the Preds uh I think they had seven or eight shots on goal, I believe, on those four power plays. Uh, 0 for 3 against Calgary, gave up the shorthanded goal. Are you seeing penalty kills units being um, more aggressive? It seems like that to me. Like It seems like they're pressuring the half wall. They're pressuring their box is not as tight as it was early on in the season when the Hawks were having so much success. And what can the Hawks do to combat that? Yeah, it's well, because teams know that Kane, when Kane gets the puck, he's going to try to get it to debrink it. And so they've been really, teams are really preparing for, okay, let's just not open up this seam for them. I thought, honestly, Pat, the, the Nashville game, I thought it was one of their best power play performances of the season that they didn't score. Like they literally had 24 shot attempts, 11 scoring chances, and 12 12 of those were shots on goal of the of the 24 attempts. Like, wow. They, I mean, a majority, 12 of the 38 shots on goal came on the power play, and they had 24 shot attempts. The very first power play in the Nashville game, they had 10 shot attempts alone. Like they were getting, they were getting looks. And like I remember, I, I talked, we talked to Seth Jones after the game, and he's like. I was like, you guys had 10 shot attempts in, in the uh, the first. Is that, he's like, is that how much it was? Because it felt like, you know, like it, it was like we were getting our looks, but they they couldn't bury it. And how much of that is, you know, they ran into UC Saros, who's like playing out of his mind right now. So, um, but it's just, it's crazy how we've gotten here because the first 12 games, they were literally a top five power play. And now they are in the bottom three in power play percentage. But I would I would literally roll roll back the same units as they did in Nashville and and see where that takes you because i think changing it up after every game when there isn't a goal is is like overthinking it at that point so yeah and look it coincides with tyler johnson leaving but we can't put all of that on on the lack of success you know tyler johnson could not be the linchpin in the bumper role for the success of this unit um taves doesn't want to play the bumper role he's usually he's usually down low on the right side I think Seth needs to do more shooting at the top when he gets opportunities so that the PK respects him a little bit more, even if they just block the shot and it's up to the Hawks to retrieve it. Because I just think like right now they feel like it's either coming from 88 side or more likely 12 side, the shot attempts. And I think they need to try to generate a little bit more uh, from the blue line and who do you think is like the ideal bumper person right now? Do you do you have a favorite in the clubhouse? Oh man, who was it before that? Was it Hagel? Was on the first Hagel, unit before Doc? Hagel's been in it. Doc's been in it. Yeah, I didn't had a cup of coffee in it. Yeah, honestly, I would. I would Kirby in the bumper role. Um, I know isn't uh, isn't ideal, but I would keep it just because of what the success they had against Nashville. Um, in getting those shots like like you said Seth Jones 
I thought he actually had a shooting mentality on against Nashville on the power point, and yeah, it actually so opened. We've seen all season, yes. no question. And so I think when he does, uh, when he does shoot from the point, you're totally right. Then it's going to open up those seam passes, but you know, with Patrick Kane and Alex DeBrinket. So, you know, man, they got to get. You know, even we saw it last year when Andrew Shaw was in that spot in the bumper role. Like they were so good because he was like an ideal person to have in that spot because he he was such a good puck retrieval. I think the Hawks were like top three in like puck retrieval on the on the power play last year. And then when Andrew Shaw got down, you know, went down with an injury, they were like one of the worst in the league after that. So it's it's such a I know we're, we don't want to put such a heavy emphasis on that bumper role, but it is a crucial point. I mean, look at all the all, all the players that play that spot across the NHL Braden point for Tampa TJ Oshie for Washington. Like those are like, that's an important bumper spot. It's, you know, so I know Washington or uh, Alex Ovechkin makes Washington's power play goal, but like don't underestimate like how important that bumper role is. So yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I know the right answer. I, I don't know if there is a right answer. I just think you have to, you have to go based on what is working at that time and what was working against Nashville. I think I would roll that back on Tuesday. That's a great point too, right? The overreaction thing. I think that's something, you know, when you're mired in a, in a skid, you, you, you might tend to overreact. So um, I think those are uh, important points. As far as five on five, I mentioned, I like Borkstrom in the first period. We're still looking for the consistent centerman for Debrinket and Kane. They're also on the ice for a lot of the opposition's goals that, you know, we're, we're, you know, Cat obviously, you know, scored on Sunday night. We know Patrick's situation. Uh, it's hard to, to see them dash two when, you know, they're not scoring either. Right. I like, I do like Henrik Borgstrom in that, um, as that top line center, because it feels like, the the second and third lines are very balanced when you can put a guy like that in between Debrinkin and Kane. Like when you look at the third line of Kubalik, Doc, and Kurashev, you know, that's a that's a pretty solid line if those if those three can channel that offensive um offensive minded mentality together. Even in Nashville, Pat um, Kubalik and Kurashev, when they were on the ice together at even strength, they they um they had 15 shot attempts and only two against. Like they were really good together. So when you can have a third line like that, um, it's pretty solid and, and having Borkstrom up there with Debrinkin and Kane is basically just like, go, go retrieve pucks. Um, you know, it's that second line, Hagel, um, Jonathan Taves, Dylan Strom, like at some point they got to, they got to produce because that's, those are the guys that are getting the most minutes out of anyone else. Like we can say, Oh, that the Hawks had a really good third line in Nashville, but it's like the top six has to be, has to be the, the offensive drivers. Um, and if you're not being offensive drivers, you have to, defend well and you have to shut down the opposing top line but typically that's what you want your bottom six to do you want that third line to be the checking role so i think that's what it really comes down to is, is getting that top six but it, it almost feels like the the second line is become like that would be good enough for secondary scoring on this team right like typically you think of secondary scoring you think of your bottom six i mean like if that second line can get going with hagel taves and Strom, like that would even be enough to to kind of put the blackhawks back in maybe a respectable conversation offensively yeah, I, I'm with you. Like, I, like Kershev, I think could have had two goals on on Saturday night. That they they you mentioned early on, uh, he's wide open. Dahan puts a wrister on net. Sorrows with uh, uncharacteristic rebound that goes right to him, and the play is whistled automatically. It's like wow. Yeah, what was that? I don't I don't know. That could have been buried uh, early on, and, and then all of a sudden. 
it maybe loosens up Delia and he doesn't allow the softie that he did, uh, or that might have already happened. I don't know. I can't remember exactly. I know it was the first minute of the game. <laughs> um, the, the Hagel tape strongly. I just did, didn't notice Dylan much on uh, on Sunday, and uh, and I thought the fourth line of Kara, uh, Josiah Slavin, and Curtis Gabriel, boy. Uh, I know you want physicality when you're taking on some bigger teams and, and you uh, you want to have players, you know, that are able to stick up for one another. But, boy, uh, sometimes there's some offensively challenged fourth lines. I mean, you see them get the puck in the neutral zone and then just, like, explodes off their stick. You're like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and the skating, too. You're like, wow, what's going on here? So, that wasn't my favorite fourth line. You know, like I like Carpenter out there in, the, in a fourth line role. I think, um, you know, he's been kind of a mainstay. Um, and uh, I, I thought that I think we just need to get back to loading up the top six. If you think Borgstrom <laughs> is right for Kane and Debrinkit, keep it there. I think Kubalik and Kershev are going. Um, I, I, I just find... Uh, you know, it, it, would, would it be better to put Kubelik, Taves, and Kurashev together? I don't know. Um, it, it's just you know, these now are we're like we're kind of spitballing, <laughs> and, and I feel like we're we're chasing our tail because we've been having these conversations for weeks. I was just going to say, it feels like we're just grasping at straws at this point. I mean, we're like we're three months into the season, and we're still having like the same conversations of like maybe maybe we explore putting Kubelik with Hagel and Taves again, and you know, like as if. You know, I, I honestly do not know how to how to fix it. Like, I, I just feels like the, the power play should not be this bad. And if you start to get momentum on the power play, like maybe that spills into your five on five game and gives the five on five confidence. And so, yeah, we're chasing our tail at this point. Um, on paper, we can make a bunch of tweaks, but it just feels like it's it's a psychological thing at this point. It's not really like the Blackhawks are not exploring certain line combination options. Right. It's a huge challenge for this team, like the five games in eight days, especially for somebody like Jonathan Taves, who talks about energy level the way he does. He only won 44% of his draws on Sunday. I thought the one bright spot was Arvid Soderblom. He looked much better Sunday than when he was thrown into the fire on Saturday. And um, I would assume Marc-Andre Fleury will be ready to go Tuesday against Colorado, right? Yeah, that was a that was a pretty solid game for for Arvid Soderblom. Like my takeaway from that game is he was the least of their worries that night and he went into the night like you were the most concerned about the goaltending position. So it was a very weird 180 from the from the day before. I would fully expect now the, the so the Blackhawks held a typically you don't hold a morning skate after on, on the second of a of a back to back. They held an optional morning skate on uh, Sunday, and I think it was strictly to get Mark Andre Fleury um, another uh, like a, a skate in a practice so that he could be ready for Tuesday's game. And he obviously backed up Soderblom yesterday against Calgary. I, I fully expect him to be the goaltender, especially against a Colorado Avalanche team that is just firing on all cylinders right now. You mentioned right as we started our podcast that uh, you look at this upcoming road trip. So you got Colorado Tuesday night at the United Center, then uh, at Arizona on Thursday. Now that team is 11 points behind the Blackhawks. DFL in the West. You, you gotta you gotta get two points there, and then it's at Vegas Saturday and at Columbus. You think those two games? are pivotal don't you 
very pivotal and there there's some sentimental um value in those games too with Marc Andre Fleury returning to Vegas and Seth Jones returning to Columbus and Adam Boquist is just on a heater right now in Columbus. I think he has like he's up to six goals or something on the season. Like he's been he's been pr- pretty solid. So, I think that it, it's they're approaching they're approaching the schedule where uh, you know the part in the schedule where they 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 have to start picking up points and there there are no more like moral victories. I mean, we've probably reached that point even before the holiday break, but they dug themselves such a significant hole. Like you look at the Vancouver Canucks, they they um obviously hired Bruce Boudreaux. They're, they've won seven or eight in a row, and like they're right, they're three points out of the wild card spot right now. Like the Hawks haven't had that run yet, aside from those first four games under Derek King. So. Like since then, it's been win, lose, win, lose, and now obviously these last four games have been losses. So like they they have to get on some sort of significant run, and it's got to start now. It can't be like, well, maybe after maybe after Vegas, Columbus, Columbus, you see Montreal and Anaheim is next on the schedule, then Seattle. Like maybe you can go on a run that like it's got to start happening now. And it feels silly that we're talking about this right now because I think their their playoff odds are probably at like two percent maybe. But if they if that's still like part of the goal you know they, they have to start making some sort of run we can't look at when the schedule gets easier for them to be like okay here's where i think the run could start hey as we wrap things up here i just want to thank chicago sports fans uh for stepping up in the last week you know as many of you know we lost a great one in jeff dickerson who uh covered the bears for the better part of two decades for ESPN, and uh, he had lost his wife, Caitlin, to cancer two years ago. And uh, they leave behind Parker, their 11-year-old. And the outpouring of support, uh, you know, people buying the the T-shirts that Obvious sports, or uh, what is it? Yeah, obvious shirts. Obvious shirts uh, put together. And I think that's at fifty thousand that they've donated with all the the money going uh, that when you purchase a hoodie or a t-shirt going to the uh, Parker Fund at the GoFundMe, and you know people like Adam Schefter and the NFL world stepping up and and uh, kind of getting momentum among the NFL family, and now this is over a million dollars, and it certainly doesn't bring back Caitlin, it doesn't bring back Jeff. Um, but it, it, uh, it's, it's going to help this young boy get through some really um, unfortunate and difficult times. And uh, I just want to say, you know, it's like just when you think nothing good can come from social media, that's where it's, a lot of good comes from social media. That, that's all how that generated that kind of money for Parker. And so... Bravo to you if you were able to come up with a couple dollars or more. And if you're if you're just hearing about this for the first time and you have some expendable uh, money, uh, give it a thought. Uh, again, GoFundMe, the Parker Fund. Uh, you'd be uh, you'd be helping out a uh, a young man who's been dealt a very difficult card. Yeah, no question. Part part of the. Um... It was really nice to see, honestly, like I spent like all day looking at the GoFundMe account and you see the different names. It's like the LA Rams and the Seattle Seahawks and the Green Bay Packers, like the community. It was from, it was such a wide ranging um, of 
people and, and organizations that were donating and shout out to the Blackhawks too. Like the Blackhawks foundation, they, they donated, um, I want to say it was $5,000 and then interim general manager, Kyle Davidson also pitched in 1250. So that was, that was really cool seeing the impact that, um, beyond football, right? Like even the Chicago community took care of their own. So yeah, Pat, if, if there's one thing that, that, there's one silver lining that came out of this is that the entire sports community rallied around Parker and kind of set him up moving forward. But it's such a, it was such a heartbreaking situation. And uh, you just, Parker is going to have a lot of people in his corner moving forward. And I think that's the, um, you know, that'll be nice moving forward that he'll have such a strong support system as he goes through this. On that note, we're going to wrap things up here on the Black Box Talk podcast. Don't forget to rate us. And we'll catch you next time on the Black Box Talk Podcast.